Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of Mounted Police Life in Canada. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mounted Police Life in Canada by Captain Burton Dean. Chapter Sixteen, Part One. Louis Riel executed for treason. Mr. Osler outlined to the jury the story which he proposed to prove by the evidence, and I need do no more than record his closing remarks. I believe the facts as I have opened them to you will be fully and thoroughly sustained by the evidence, and there will be this further matter appear in evidence, that the prisoner was not there for the purpose so much of aiding the half-breeds as he was there for the purpose of utilizing the half-breeds for his own selfish ends. You will find throughout the evidence in this case that it was not so much the rights of the half-breeds he was making as the power and benefit of Louis Riel and money that Louis Riel wanted to extort from the government. It will appear that this so-called patriot, leader of an oppressed people, was willing to leave the country and go wherever the government wanted him if he got a sum of money from the government. Gentlemen, when he found that the church to which he belonged to which his principal supporters belonged, was against him in the movement, he had more ground to play upon his material, and, to feed his own vanity and ambition, he had himself named as the leader and prophet of his new religion, the prophet of the Saskatchewan, was the cry under which his poor dupes, and many of them should have known better, were supposed to rally, intending by combining religious power to follow on the North Saskatchewan the methods of Eastern leaders. I think you will find the evidence shows that he was utterly careless of his methods, and had but one object, his own power or money, and he did not care whose lives he sacrificed. These statements were, in every instance, fully justified by the evidence which followed. It was shown beyond doubt that Riel himself was the head and shoulders of the whole movement. In the camp of Poundmaker, an Indian chief, was found a letter in Riel's writing, signed by himself, dispatched after the Duck Lake skirmish, wherein nine men were killed, in which he said, Praise God for the success he has given us. Capture all the police you possibly can. Preserve their arms. Take Fort Battle, but save the provisions, munitions, and arms. Send a detachment to us of at least one hundred men. In another letter, proved at the trial to be in his handwriting, addressed to the French and English Métis, mixed breeds, from Battle River to Fort Pitt, he said, We will help you to take Fort Battle and Fort Pitt. Try and have the news which we send to you conveyed as soon as possible to the Métis and Indians of Fort Pitt. Tell them to be on their guard, to prepare themselves for anything. Take with you the Indians, gather them together everywhere, Take all the ammunition you can, in whatever stores they may be. Murmur, growl, and threaten. Rouse up the Indians. A good many of the Indians, whom he talked so lightly of rousing, were refugee Sioux, who had come into Canada after the Custer massacre, and had not gone back with Sitting Bull when he returned to the United States. Very undesirable persons to rouse up. Dr. John H. Willoughby, deposed that he went from Saskatoon, where he was practicing medicine, to Batouche, a distance of about fifty miles, on March 16th, 
and there saw Riel with about sixty or seventy armed half-breeds. Riel told him that his plans were now mature, and that, as soon as he struck the first blow, he would be joined by half-breeds and Indians, and that the United States were at his back. He intended to divide the country into seven portions, and they were to be given to the Bavarians, Poles, Italians, German, and Irish. There was to be a new Ireland in the northwest, and the Irish of the United States were to be given a chance, as well as the inhabitants of the distressful country. He pointed to his men, and said to Dr. Willoughby, You see now, I have my police. In one week that little government police will be wiped out of existence. He added that the rebellion of fifteen years ago would not be a patch upon this one. Mr. Charles Nolan had the time of his life. He was a very prominent half-breed who had strongly sympathized with Riel and his aspirations, so long as he kept them within bounds. When Riel told him that he had decided to induce the people to take up arms, Nolan decided that it was time to drop the connection. He did so and gave evidence to the Crown. He said in part, In the beginning of December 1884, he, Riel, began to show a desire to have money. He spoke to me about it first, I think. I think he said he wanted $10,000 or $15,000. Question. From whom would he get the money? He said that the Canadian government owed him about 100000 and then the question arose who the persons were whom he would have to talk to the government about the indemnity. Some time after that, the prisoner told me that he had an interview with Father André and that he had made peace with the church. He said that he went to the church with Father André, and in the presence of another priest and the blessed sacrament he had made peace, and that he would never again do anything against the clergy. Father André told him he would use his influence with the government to obtain for him $35,000. Counsel for the prisoner exploited, for all that it was worth, the argument that Riel came to Canada at the request of others, which was true and that, having come here, he desired to return to the United States, and would have done so but for the pressure upon him by his friends. This was not true. Witness the evidence of a man who was more in Riel's confidence than anybody else. Charles Nolan There was a meeting on February 24th when the prisoner was present. Question. What took place at that meeting? Did the prisoner say anything about his departing for the United States? Answer. Yes. Question. What did the prisoner tell you about that? Answer. He told me that it would be well to try and make it appear as if they wanted to stop him going to the States. Five or six persons were appointed to go among the people, and when Riel's going away was spoken about, the people were to say, No, no. Riel never had any intention of leaving the country. Question. Who instructed the people to do that? Answer. Riel suggested that himself. Question. Was that put in practice? Answer. Yes. Question. When did you finally differ from the prisoner in opinion? Answer. About twenty days before they took up arms, I broke with the prisoner and made open war upon him. Question. What happened on the 19th? Answer. On March 19th, I and the prisoner were to meet to explain the situation. I was taken prisoner by four armed men. Question. Did you have occasion to go to the council after that? Answer. 
During the night I was brought before the council. Question. Was the prisoner there? Answer. Yes. Question. What did he say? Answer. I was brought before the council about ten o'clock at night. The prisoner made the accusation against me. Question. What did you do? Answer. I defended myself. Question. What did you say in a few words? Answer. I proved to the council that the prisoner had made use of the movement to claim the indemnity for his own pocket. Question. Were you acquitted? Answer. Yes. Question. Were you in the church after that? Answer. The prisoner protested against the decision of the council. Question. Why did you join the movement? Answer. To save my life. Question. You were condemned to death? Answer. Yes. Question. When were you condemned to death? Answer. When I was made a prisoner, I had been condemned to death when I was brought to the church. It was during the cross-examination of this witness by Mr. Lemieux that the little rift between the prisoner and his counsel became apparent. The witness was about to leave the box when the prisoner spoke. Your Honour, would you permit me a little while? Mr. Justice R. In the proper time, I will tell you when you may speak to me. Not just now, though. Prisoner. If there is any way by legal procedure that I should be allowed to say a word, I wish you would allow me before this witness leaves the box. Mr. Justice R. I think you should suggest any question you have to your own counsel. Prisoner. Do you allow me to say? I have some observation to make before the court. Mr. Fitzpatrick, I don't think this is the proper time, Your Honour, that the prisoner should be allowed to say anything on the matter. Mr. Justice R. I should ask him at the close of the case before it goes to the jury. Mr. Fitzpatrick, that is the time to do it. Mr. Justice R. I think you should mention it quietly to your counsel, and if they think it proper for your defence, they will put it. Mr. Fitzpatrick, I think that the time has now arrived when it is necessary to state to the court that we require that the prisoner at the bar should thoroughly understand that anything that is done in this case must be done through us, and if he wishes anything to be done, he must necessarily give us instructions. He should be given to understand that he should give any instructions to us, and he must not be allowed to interfere. He is now endeavouring to withhold instructions. Mr. Justice R., is there not this difficulty under the statute saying that he shall do so? Mr. Fitzpatrick, I think the statute provides that he may make statements to the jury. Mr. Justice R. The prisoner may defend himself under the statute, personally or by counsel. Mr. Fitzpatrick, once he has counsel, he has no right to interfere. Mr. Robinson, he has the right to address the jury. Mr. Fitzpatrick, I am not aware of any right, then. Prisoner. If you will allow me, Your Honour, this case comes to be extraordinary, and while the Crown, with the great talents they have at its service, are trying to show that I am guilty, of course it is their duty. My counsellors are trying, my good friends and lawyers, who have been sent here by my friends, whom I respect, are trying to show that I am insane. Mr. Justice R. Now you must stop. Prisoner, I will stop and obey your court. Mr. Justice R. 
I will tell you once more, if you have any questions which you think ought to be put to this witness, and which your advisers have not put, just tell them quietly, and they will put it, if they think it proper to do so. Mr. Fitzpatrick. I don't think he ought to be allowed to say any more. For the last two days we have felt ourselves in this position, that this man is actually obstructing the proper management of this case for the express purpose of having a chance to interfere in this case, and he must be given to understand immediately that he won't be allowed to interfere in it, or else it will be absolutely useless for us to endeavour to continue any further in it. Mr. Justice R. Is that a matter that I ought to interfere in? Isn't that a matter entirely between yourself and your client? Suppose you cannot go on, and my ruling was called in question, and the question was raised, and the court allowed such and such a thing to be done? Mr. Fitzpatrick. I don't pretend to argue with the court. It is not my practice. It is not my custom. I have stated to the court what I think of this case. I think the court here is bound by the ordinary rules of law, and so long as the prisoner is represented by counsel, it is his duty to give such instructions to his counsel as to enable him to do his duty to his case. Mr. Justice R. I admit he ought to do so, but suppose he does not, and suppose counsel think fit to throw up their brief. Mr. Fitzpatrick. We are entirely free to do that, and that is a matter of our consideration at the present moment. If the prisoner is allowed to interfere, of course I have to take the ruling of the court. Mr. Justice R. I don't like to dictate to you, but it strikes me that now an opportunity should be taken of ascertaining whether there is really anything that has not been put to this witness that ought to have been put. Mr. Fitzpatrick. We have very little desire to have questions put which we, in our discretion, do not desire to put. What has this court to do with theories about inspiration and the division of lands further than we have gone into it? However, I, of course, have to accept the ruling of the court as it is given, and then it will be for the counsel for the defence to consider the position. Mr. Robinson. It must be quite understood that no rulings of the court are given with the desire or at the request, or with the concurrence of the Crown. We have nothing to do in the shape of interference. We must not be drawn into the position that there is a ruling of the court on a question of that kind. I think it would probably be right for the court to ask the prisoner whether the case is or is not fully in the hands of the counsel. It is for the prisoner to say. Mr. Fitzpatrick, we accept that suggestion. Mr. Justice R., are you defended by counsel? Answer my question, please. Is your case in the hands of counsel? Prisoner. Partly. My case is partly in their hands. Mr. Justice R. Now stop. Are you defended by counsel or not? Have you advisers? Prisoner. I don't wish to leave them aside. I want them. I want their services. But I want my cause, Your Honor, to be defended to the best which circumstances allow. Mr. Justice R. Then you must leave it in their hands. Prisoner. I will, if you please, say this reason. My counsel comes from Quebec, from a far province. They have to put questions to men with whom they are not acquainted, on circumstances which they don't know. And although I am willing to give them all the information that I can, they cannot follow the thread of all the questions that can be put to the witnesses. 
they lose more than three-quarters of the good opportunities of making good answers not because they are not able they are learned they are talented but the circumstances are such that they cannot put all the questions if i would be allowed as it was suggested this case is extraordinary mr justice r you have told me your case is in the hands of the advisers prisoner partly mr justice r now you must leave it there until you get through i will give you an opportunity of speaking to the court at the proper time prisoner the witnesses are passing and the opportunities mr justice r tell your counsel prisoner i cannot all i have much to say mr justice r if there is any question not put to this witness which you think ought to be put tell it to your counsel and they will say whether it should be put prisoner i have on cross-examination two hundred questions mr robinson we had better understand this counsel for the crown are taking no part our inclination is if counsel for the prisoner agree to it to let the prisoner put any question he pleases to the witness we don't wish to interfere in any way between the prisoner and his counsel mr fitzpatrick would your honour allow us say five minutes of a consultation mr justice r i was going to suggest that you should take a little time and that the prisoner should go with you an adjournment here took place and on the court reassembling the conversation was resumed along the original lines the conference had produced no practical result mr lemieux explained that although he and his confreres have done their very best to help the prisoner it appears that he is not very well pleased or it appears he thinks we did not put all the questions to the witnesses that we should have put mr robinson interjected if the prisoner under the special circumstances of this case desires to join his counsel in conducting the examination or cross-examination of witnesses the crown do not object to it but the prisoner's counsel were obdurate as mr lemieux put it if the prisoner insists upon putting questions to the witnesses we object to it and we moreover say that we will not continue to act in the case as counsel we think however it is too late for him to now disavow or refuse it was a hopeless impasse the prisoner would not discharge his counsel he would not confide to them the questions that he desired to ask they would not concede to him the right to ask them himself and at one time he said here i have to defend myself against the accusation of high treason or i have to consent to the animal life of an asylum i don't care much about animal life if i am not allowed to carry with it the moral existence of an intellectual being mr justice r now stop prisoner yes your honour i will mr justice r i think i shall have to tell you that you are in your counsel's hands and if you and they cannot agree then will come another question whether the court will not further interfere and say counsel must go on the examination of charles nolan was then continued and the witness said that the counsel that condemned him to death was one that was called exovede he said that the prisoner had separated entirely from the clergy that the half-breeds were people who need religion which had a great influence on their mind asked if without religion the prisoner would have succeeded in bringing the half-breeds with him the witness answered no it would never have succeeded 
if the prisoner had not made himself appear as a prophet, he would never have succeeded in bringing the half-breeds with him. Mr. Lemieux recross-examined the witness after this. The witness was asked if the prisoner did not lose a great deal of his influence by the fact that he lost the influence of the clergy, and he replied that at the time the prisoner gained influence by working against the clergy and by making himself as priest. Asked if he meant the people did not have confidence in their clergy, he said, no, but they were ignorant, and advantage was being taken of their ignorance and simplicity. Prisoner. I wish to put a question myself to the witness in the box, Your Honor. Mr. Justice R. If your counsel see fit to put it, they will put it, and if not, the witness is discharged. Mr. Lemieux. I asked the prisoner if he had any questions to put to the witness through me, and he said he had none, that he would only put questions by himself. Some little further conversation continued along the same lines, and another witness was called. Several papers were produced in court at different times, bearing the signature, Luis David Riel, Exovede. One was a demand addressed to Major Crozier, commander of the police forts, Carleton and Battleford, calling upon him to surrender his forts to the provisional government of the Saskatchewan. Another was addressed to Messieurs Charles Nolan and Maxime Lapine, who were instructed to deliver the first-mentioned document. A third was addressed to Major General Middleton and dated May 15th. In order to explain the meaning of the word exovede, I have to refer to the testimony of Captain George Young of the Winnipeg Field Battery, who received Riel from General Middleton on the evening of May 15th and remained in charge of him until he delivered him to me at Regina on May 23rd. This witness said, inter alia, During the term of eight or nine days that I was living with him, Riel, entirely, there was an immense amount of conversation. We conversed almost constantly and very freely. He conversed on almost every subject connected with the rebellion. When we found the books and papers in the council room, we found the word exovede, this bothered us a great deal, and one of the first things I asked the prisoner was what it meant. He wrote the meaning of the word in my notebook. It is lengthy. Mr. Greenshields. No matter, let us have it. It is as follows. From two Latin words, ex, which means from, and ovid, flock. That word I made use of to convey that I was assuming no authority at all and the advisers of the movement took also that title instead of councillors or representatives, and their purpose for doing so was exactly the same as mine, no assumption of authority. Several times, it is true, we made use of the words representative members of the council, but we had to do it until the word exofeed was understood, and it would begin to become useful amongst even the men of the movement. So the council itself, is not a council, being composed of exovedes, we have called the exovedate. In examination-in-chief, this witness was asked by Mr. Robinson, Question. From first to last of these conversations with you, did you observe anything to arouse a suspicion or indicate that he was of unsound mind? Answer. Not at all, certainly not. I found that I had a mind against my own, and fully equal to it better educated, and much more clever than I was myself. He would stop and evade answering questions with the best possible advantage. 
In the hands of Mr. Greenshields, the witness acknowledged that he had had no experience in dealing with people of unsound mind, nor had he received a medical education. Question. Do you not consider yourself in a position to give an opinion as to sanity? Answer. I could not give a medical opinion, but I consider that during the nine days I was living with him, I would know if I was living with a lunatic. The next witness whom I call into the witness box of this court, of reminiscences, is Dr. James M. Wallace, who told Mr. Osler that, for about nine years, he had been in charge of the asylum for the insane at Hamilton, Ontario, but had studied insanity for more years than that. He had been present during the sitting of the court, had heard the evidence, had interviewed the prisoner alone for about half an hour, and had discovered no indication of insanity. He thought the prisoner was of sound mind and capable of distinguishing right from wrong. In answer to Mr. Fitzpatrick, the doctor said he had heard of the particular form of mental disease known as megalomania, a term which was scarcely ever used, and that only by one writer. Note. The reader must remember that this was thirty years ago. End note. Question. You are aware that this particular form of insanity is characterized, among other things, by extreme irritability on the part of the patient? Answer. Not megalomania. Megalomania simply applies to grandiose ideas. It can have no other definition than that. And these ideas, allow me to explain, are delusions. They are delusions such as a person holding or believing himself to be king or possessed of immense wealth and that the world is at his feet. Question. But you are quite sure that the character of irritability is not one of the characteristics of this malady? Answer. It is not a malady. It is merely a symptom commonly found in paralytic insanity. Question. Where the disease exists, is the idea, the result of disease, fixed and constant? Answer. It is the result of the disease. Question. But is it fixed or intermittent? Answer. In those cases it is fixed. Question. So that when a queen has taken herself to be a queen, she remains a queen? Answer. She usually dies a queen? Question. In her own idea? Answer. Yes. Question. Not sometimes a queen and sometimes otherwise? Answer. No. The witness to be called upon to tell his recollections was Father Alexis Andre Oblate, who had lived with the half-breeds of the Saskatchewan for about twenty-five years. He was one of the witnesses who were brought from Prince Albert at the expense of the Crown to give evidence in Riel's favour, and Mr. Lemieux tried to extract from him an opinion adverse to the sanity of the prisoner. Question. You have had a good deal of experience with people, and you have known persons who were afflicted with mania? Answer. Before answering that, I want to state a fact to the court regarding the prisoner. You know the life of that man affected us during a certain time. Question. In what way? Answer. He was a fervent Catholic, attending the church and attending to his religious duties frequently, and his state of mind was the cause of great anxiety. In conversation on politics and on the rebellion and on religion, he stated things which frightened the priests. I am obliged to visit every month the fathers, priests, of the district. Once all of the priests met together and they put the question, Is it possible to allow that man to continue in his religious duties? 
and they unanimously decided that on this question he was not responsible, that he was completely a fool on this question, and that he could not suffer any contradiction. On the question of religion and politics, we considered that he was completely a fool. Mr. Lemieux rather incontinently dropped this witness, who was taken in hand by Mr. Cassgrain for the Crown. Question. I believe in the month of December 1884, you had an interview with Riel and Nolan with regard to a certain sum of money which the prisoner claimed from the federal government? Answer. Not with Nolan. He was not present. Question. The prisoner was there? Answer. Yes. Question. Will you please state what the prisoner asked from the federal government? Answer. I had two interviews with the prisoner on that subject. When he made his claim, I was there with another gentleman, and he asked from the government $100,000. We thought that was exorbitant, and the prisoner said, Wait a little. I will take at once $35,000 cash. Question. And on that condition, the prisoner was allowed to leave the country if the government gave him the $35,000? Answer. Yes, that was the condition he put. Footnote. As we now learn from the late Lord Strathcona's biographer that that nobleman himself, when he was plain Donald A. Smith, at the request of Governor Archibald, paid Riel $3,000 to leave the country for the time being, after the rebellion of 1870, and after he had perpetrated the cold-blooded murder of Thomas Scott, and as we learn from the same authority that Archbishop Taché declared that the government authorized him to promise Riel an amnesty, it is quite evident that there was more method in poor Louise's madness than any of us at that time had any idea of. The same biographer tells us that when the Liberal Party came into power after the expose of the Pacific scandal in 1873, Louise Riel was elected for Provencher and actually travelled to Ottawa for the purpose of being sworn in a member of the House of Commons. At this time he was a fugitive from justice. He succeeded in taking the oath and in writing his name in the book. In the hurry and confusion of the moment, he was allowed to slip away from the house undetected. No one seemed to bother about him greatly, and he was, accordingly, permitted to escape. It would have meant the saving of a little blood and a good deal of treasure, but the development of the great lone land would have been delayed for at least a generation. End footnote. Question. When was this? Answer. On December 23, 1884. Question. There was also another interview between you and the prisoner? Answer. There have been about 20 interviews between us. Question. He was always after you to ask you to use your influence with the federal government to obtain this indemnity? Answer. The first time he spoke of it was on December 12th. He had never spoken a word about it before. And on December 23rd, he spoke about it again. Question. Is it not true that the prisoner told you he himself was the half-breed question? Answer. He did not say so in express terms, but he conveyed that idea. He said, if I am satisfied, the half-breeds will be. I must explain this. This objection was made to him that even if the government granted him the $35,000, the half-breed question would remain the same. And he said in answer to that, if I am satisfied, the half-breeds will be. Question. Is it not a fact that he told you he would even accept a less sum than the $35,000? Answer. Yes, he said, 
Use all the influence you can, you may get all that, but get all that you can, and if you get less, we will see. End of chapter 16, part 2